Hello and welcome to From Beta Cells to Bicycles, the official podcast of the BC Diabetes Research Network. I'm Krista Lamb and today I'll be sharing my interview with Dr. Sarah Gray. Dr. Gray is the Assistant Dean of the Northern Medical Program and an Affiliate Associate Professor in the Department of Cellular and Physiological Sciences at the University of Northern British Columbia. Dr. Gray's work examines the biological mechanisms of metabolism as it relates to obesity and type 2 diabetes. Before our interview starts, just a note that in the COVID times, we are doing all of our interviews remotely, so there may be a few small sound issues as everyone manages our new normal. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gray. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. And what I wanted to start talking about, first of all, is what it really inspired your interest in diabetes research. Why did you find yourself looking in this area? Oh, that's a great question. And it takes me back actually to when I was a graduate student doing my PhD. Um, And it was really towards the end of my PhD where a project we were working on moved me in the direction of metabolism. And it was quite an exciting time, I guess, in diabetes and obesity research. I actually work quite a lot on obesity. Um, There was a lot of um, discoveries being made in the field about how hormones can regulate body weight. And so I became quite interested, started reading a lot in the field, and I looked for an opportunity to complete my postdoctoral fellowship with a group that was working on obesity. So that's really when it started when I was a graduate student. And one of the things I found really interesting when I was researching your work is you work a lot in hormones and energy metabolism. And I think for a lot of people, those are kind of new concepts when it comes to the idea of diabetes. So can you tell me a little bit about your work in those areas and why that's important in the study of diabetes? So in the context of diabetes, it's obviously very important for type 2 diabetes. Obesity is the main risk factor or one of the largest risk factors for the development of type 2 diabetes. And so we are really trying to understand, number one, when individuals become obese or overweight, why that predisposes them to type 2 diabetes. And even prior to that, particularly recently in my research, we've been very interested in understanding even what predisposes certain individuals to becoming overweight and obese. And that's where the hormones come in. So I think very much uh, historically anyway, we've thought about overweight and obesity being something that develops really due to the fault of people who are overweight and obese. And there's a real stigma associated with this area. And so while we know, of course, that lifestyle practices such as eating healthy and exercising, et cetera, can contribute to our waste, we now know that there is a very large biological component to how our body weight is regulated. And we can see that right within the community. So we see family members that all look like one another. So I come from a long line of tall, thin people, (laughs) whereas my husband, who will hate me for saying this, comes from a long line of quite short stocky individuals who struggle with their weight. And so uh, this biological component, a large part of that are our hormones actually telling our body sort of to keep this 
this particular set point. And so we now know that hormones can regulate our appetite. So our drive to take in calories or energy, and they can also even regulate our body's motivation or drive to expend energy through things like movement, uh, physical activity, and also other uh, parts of energy expenditure, such as our metabolic rate or even thermogenesis. And what's really interesting to me about that is how now more than ever, we're seeing this sort of holistic look at how we treat obesity, but you didn't always see that factored in when it came to the physiological side of diabetes. So one of the things that you guys seem to be doing is taking the physiological look at diabetes and obesity and how do they sort of work together? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the thing is that clearly in chronic disease in general, a lot of chronic diseases involve both a physiological component as well as a lifestyle or social component. And so obesity and diabetes is is an excellent example of that, similar to something like cardiovascular disease. So again, there's many examples. So it's really an interplay. So we don't think that just understanding the physiology or identifying the physiology so that we could say have a therapeutic target, for example, that might for for anti-obesity, that's not what really our goal is. It's one piece of the puzzle that's going to contribute to the other aspects of obesity research, such as it can even be as far away as urban planning, right? Where that can impact our ability or our, uh, the incorporation of activities, for example, into our um, activities of daily living. So it's really just one piece of the puzzle, but a really important understanding, particularly when we're counseling patients who, as I said, have a lot of, um, there's a lot of stigma associated with obesity. And I think it's really important for us as physiologists to understand the disease of obesity better so that we can integrate that into their, into their care and into their management. And I think that that's one of the things that was really highlighted when Obesity Canada released their guidelines this year, where they talked about the treatment of obesity. And I'm not sure if if you're familiar with them, but they really looked at it from such a, a drilled down place, you know, everything from the barriers that people face culturally, the barriers that they might face in terms of access to healthy foods or exercise. Or, so it really helped to reframe how we looked at treatments for obesity. And so I love this idea of looking at it through the physiological lens, as well as the lens of the day-to-day treatment in the clinic. So I'd love for you to speak a little bit more about that. I'm going to just start with what you just said there about that integration of therapeutics, because sometimes when we talk about therapies, we our mind immediately goes to say drug therapy. But of course, lifestyle interventions, or even like we talked about sort of changes in our um, community structures, et cetera, those actually in the context of obesity could all be therapies at different levels. Um, And I just wanted to draw on an example because, again, and I I hate to be presumptuous to our audience, but I know from my speaking to a variety of different audiences, there sometimes can be a little bit of hesitation when I talk about anti-obesity therapies, particularly in the context of um, pharmacological therapies. People are very often very opposed to that idea. But then I, I like to draw on some examples from Uh, our current management of other chronic disease that we know there's an interplay between genetics, physiology, 
and lifestyle factors where we do do an integrated type of therapy. So if we look at something like dyslipidemia or high cholesterol, we know that that very much has both genetic, physiological, and lifestyle components to it. And we use an integrated management approach. So for example, there are many pharmacological agents that will lower cholesterol like statins. But at the same time, when you would be at say your family doctor and you would be prescribed a statin, you would also be encouraged or prescribed some lifestyle modifications. So um, that's an example. Another is blood pressure. So antihypertensive agents, again, lifestyle modifications. And so in my mind, anti-obesity therapies would follow along with that kind of paradigm, but maybe as you've mentioned, even extend further out to those sort of community interventions. So I hope that answered your question. Oh, absolutely. And I just think it's a really interesting role that people play now in terms of the science of looking at obesity and its connection to type 2 diabetes, in particular in that we're looking at things in a collaborative way a lot more now. And so I wanted to ask you about your work with the BC Diabetes Research Network, because that's an opportunity for basic scientists, discovery level scientists, clinical scientists, you know, epidemiologists, all of these people coming together who work in the field of diabetes, but weren't always encouraged to collaborate in the way that is becoming much more common now. How has that helped or influenced your work? Yeah, so I've always been extremely fortunate, I think, to work with integrated teams. So I'm going to give you a little bit of history. When I completed my postdoctoral fellowship in uh, England, I worked with a group that was made up almost half of scientists like myself, so PhD trained scientists who were working in the area of diabetes and obesity, but really looking at some of the foundational biological mechanisms and physiology. And then the other half of the lab was clinically trained fellows who were physicians who were bringing to us sort of anecdotes and stories about their patients, or we were using sort of patient examples. And so I was very fortunate to work in that team where both scientists and clinicians worked together. I, I then did some training with other members of the Diabetes Research Network. And so I feel very fortunate when it came back to Canada to establish my lab, I already had those, those contacts. And I agree, the BC Diabetes Research Network is that is an opportunity just for that. So um, for example, there are many colleagues that I have within the Diabetes Research Network who are world experts in the area of islet biology. Islet biology requires a, a huge amount of technical expertise just because their islet cells are located within the pancreas, very challenging to get to, very challenging to image. So most certainly when we have a project that would involve us looking at islets, I know that I have this group of scientists who I can reach out to, whether we do actually a collaborative project together, or even if it's just bouncing ideas off them. That's a huge resource for me um, because I wouldn't necessarily call myself an expert in the area of islets. And then in the reverse, because we have quite uh, expertise in adipose tissue physiology and endocrine factors, regulating fat in the same way they can reach out to us and then we can support their work from that angle. And then that's just within the realm of sort of life science, because also we have within the Diabetes Research Network, people who are doing more translational science or actually working within the clinic and patients. So while the work that we're currently doing on the hormone that we're working with that regulates body weight, we haven't got there yet. I feel like it's an opportunity for the future to collaborate with those individuals. 
Yeah, it's really wonderful to see people coming together so collaboratively. And you mentioned adipose tissue, and I know that a lot of your work is around brown adipose tissue, which isn't a concept that everybody is really familiar with. So can you tell me a little bit about brown adipose tissue and what it is that you're doing to study it? Sure, I'd love to. I love talking about brown adipose tissue. <laughs> so um, yeah, so brown adipose tissue or brown fat, actually a lot of people, I think when, when they hear the word brown fat, they, they think about it in the context of human infants or maybe even rodents. And uh, so brown fat has been studied, studied for decades from uh, the physiological perspective. So we actually know quite a lot about brown fat. So brown fat is a specialized type of adipose tissue that is specialized to generate heat. So whereas white fat um, will store extra calories in the form of triglyceride, brown fat also stores energy in the form of triglyceride, but expresses a particular protein that it allows it to take those stored fats and generate heat. And so in terms of long-term cold exposure, that is the mammalian uh, way of generating heat for the long-term. And so it's quite an exciting area for obesity right now because in 2007, it was identified that adult humans also contain brown adipose tissue. So historically, we knew that infants had brown adipose tissue, a large depot on, on, on their back between the shoulder blades, but it was thought that it just disappeared in adult humans and we didn't need that. But actually what's been shown is that while yes, that brown adipose uh, tissue depot between the shoulder blades uh, in infant head does decrease, and isn't visible in adulthood, we do still retain depots of brown adipose tissue throughout our body in adult humans. And it is still active for the generation of heat when needed and actually contributes quite significantly to the amount of energy we expend. And what's very interesting about some of the early investigations around this adipose tissue in adult humans is that we know with age, we see a decrease in the amount of brown adipose tissue in adult humans and its activity. And also in pathophysiological states like obesity and diabetes, we see a decrease in the amount of brown adipose tissue or active brown adipose tissue. Now, those are just correlations. So we can't jump to the fact and say it's the cause of, for example, putting on a few pounds once we get to be 45 years old <laughs> or the cause of diabetes. But that's one of the things we're very interested in understanding is that contribution of brown adipose tissue to our adult physiology and how much that's contributing to our energy homeostasis or metabolism within our body. So it is, has been quite an exciting time for obesity research and almost a new angle in this uh, studying brown adipose tissue and thermogenesis in the context of this sort of energy balance in the body. And so we're moving into 2021. We'll probably be in 2021 when people are listening to this. What are you most excited about moving forward? I know 2020 has been a weird year for research. It's been a weird year for all of us. But what are you looking forward to with your research projects as we move into 2021 and beyond? So I just am going to introduce, just because I have to give the hormone that we work on maybe a little bit of publicity. It's not a very well-known hormone. So um, as I mentioned, there's quite a lot of interest in brown adipose tissue and thermogenesis. And you mentioned at the start that I'm interested in 
hormones that regulate body weight. So tying those two pieces together, we're interested in the hormones that are involved in regulating the thermogenesis that uh, occurs in brown adipose tissue. And for the past oh, many years, I've been studying a hormone called POCAP and its role in how it contributes to that. It's probably not a major player in that it's the only hormone doing it, but it's very, probably has a very significant role in sort of being an overseer of the pathway. So we've just started a project where actually we're looking at the expression of this hormone in the nervous system. So right at the top in the hypothalamus in the brain, as well as in the sympathetic nervous system that makes connections between the brain and the brown fat. And so I have a graduate student or a couple of graduate students who are working on this project. And, and despite COVID, we've, made, we've been able to make some significant progress in the techniques we've been using in the lab this year. And so we're really excited now to be able to find out, like to be able to see the results of the questions we've been asking now that we've perfected some of these techniques. Wonderful. And that sounds like it's going to lead to some pretty interesting things as you move forward. And if someone listening, if they're living with diabetes and they're wondering how this could potentially at any point um, help them, how would you respond to that? That's always a question I think that it weighs on our shoulders as scientists, because um, particularly when you're a foundational scientist, sometimes it can take decades before your work really, you know, hits the, even the textbooks, right? And so we do try to ask ourselves these questions all the time. I think as I get further along in my career, my goals really would be to try to just help to understand the physiological regulation of energy balance. So I think that I would just like to make sure that I can do what I can to develop that physiological piece around obesity that we were talking about at the start to ensure that it is always included in the conversation with obesity so that we can really try to reduce the stigma associated with obesity as if there's fault with becoming overweight or obese. And so I, I sort of see that as my job, as trying to really do as much as we can to under, fully understand that physiology. And if that also could lead to, say, potential for therapeutics, then of course that would be, um, would be another goal. And so that would have a direct impact on individuals who have type 2 diabetes, or maybe in the future, even prevent having medications that would ever prevent the development of type 2 diabetes to start with. Wonderful. And it, that sounds like some amazing goals. And I think people listening will be really excited about that. And I want to thank you for being on the show today. It has been so interesting to talk to you. I've learned a lot and I hope that people listening have too. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking. You've been listening to From Beta Cells to Bicycles, a podcast from the BC Diabetes Research Network. If you'd like more information on the network, visit diabetesbc.ca. And if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you can learn about even more of the diabetes research being done here in British Columbia. Thanks for listening.